Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We are live once again from the Fairmont Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto. And welcome once again to the 113th season of the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us today, either through our webcast or our podcast, welcome to the meeting. Before our distinguished speaker is introduced today, and I introduce the head table guests, I do want to let you know that uh, Patrick Brown has been kind enough to say he will answer some questions after his remarks. So there's some papers at each of your tables, if you don't mind writing down any questions you might have and passing them along to our staff. So I would ask that each guest at the head table rise for a brief moment and be seated after their name is called. At this point, I typically ask the audience to refrain from applauding, but we all know that that never happens. So clap away. <laughs> First up, Mr. Patrick Brown, leader of the official opposition of Ontario, leader of the Ontario PC party, and MPP for Simcoe North. Mr. J.P. Gagnon, Vice President, Personal Insurance at Travelers Canada. Ms. Jane McKenna, former PC MPP for Burlington and consultant with Bruce Power Nuclear. Mr. Phil Gillies, another former PC MPP and municipal practice lead for Enterprise. Ms. M.J. Perry, Vice President and owner of Mr. Discount Limited, PhD student at U of T, and a director at the Empire Club of Canada. Up next is Ms. Sue Vanderbent, the CEO of Home Care Ontario, and also a director at the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Gerdev Gill, financial advisor, Financial Depot Incorporated. And once again, my name is Paul Fogelin. I'm the Vice President of the Ontario Retirement Communities Association and the President of the Empire Club of Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table guests. And one last person I'd like to acknowledge in the audience. We have one of our past presidents, Dr. Eric Jackman, with us. Dr. Jackman. So one of the world's most influential business thinkers, a gentleman named Gary Hamill, he once said that a noble purpose inspires sacrifice, stimulates innovation, and encourages perseverance. It's often stated that there is no pursuit more noble than public service. So I think it's a fitting quote to introduce today's speaker. Patrick Brown is famous, or infamous if you ask his opponents, for his remarkable work ethic. And regardless of one's political views, Ontarians admire and respect political leaders who work hard and with purpose. Armed with a vision and a mission, and fueled by relentless focus, dogged determination, and perhaps a few cases of Red Bull, Patrick Brown entered the 2014 PC leadership race. When he first entered, he was actually given little chance to win. At the time, he was relatively unknown, and he was up against some established candidates with deep pockets and vast networks. But over time, people began to notice the young upstart from Barrie, who was quickly rising in the polls and winning one handshake and town hall at a time. The hard work paid off, 
And in 2015, Patrick was voted as leader of the PC party, and just a few months later was elected as MPP for Simcoe North. Since becoming leader, Patrick Brown has not slowed down. He's continued to work tenaciously on a number of fronts, including the launch of Your Opinion for Ontario, the most extensive grassroots policy and platform development program the party has ever undertaken. Patrick began his career in public service at the age of 22, when he was elected to Barrie City Council, still a student at the time. He entered federal politics in 2004 when he ran for the Conservative Party of Canada. And while he didn't win that election, he would run once again in 2006, where he defeated a sitting cabinet minister and was elected as the MP for Barrie. Patrick served as an MP for nine years before resigning once he was elected as leader of the Ontario PCs. Patrick works tirelessly to listen to and build strong partnerships with groups, individuals, first responders, the business community, government, and organizations, not just at home, but also abroad. It establishes connections for him that enable him to better serve his constituents and the people of Ontario. Patrick is an avid hockey and tennis player, and I think most of us know as well, a marathon runner. He's helped to raise nearly $2 million for the Royal Victoria Hospital in Barrie, as well as other charities such as Autism Ontario and ALS Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a very warm welcome for our speaker today, leader of the Ontario PCs, Patrick Brown. Well, thank you for the kind introduction, uh, Paul, and uh, thank you for wearing not only a blue tie and a blue suit, I just noticed you're wearing blue uh, laces on your shoes, so you certainly make a, a conservative feel, uh, feel welcome. Uh, but it's an honor to be at the Empire Club, uh, um, uh, obviously a, a rich and proud history um, where we can engage on the topics of the day. And so today I thought I would talk about where Ontario is and where we need to go uh, the challenges we're facing and what the opportunities are for us to turn the corner and get Ontario back on a track to prosperity. So we'll start off with Ontario today. We are $300 billion in debt and growing. Actually, as of earlier this week, the Auditor General tells us it may be $11 billion larger in debt than we had originally forecast. A billion dollars a month in interest. We have the second highest tax burden in the country for both businesses and families. In 2000, since 2003, every single year our economic growth has fallen behind the national average. We have 600,000 Ontarians in arrears on their hydro bills, and 30% of Ontarians, according to a recent poll, don't have confidence in the provincial economy. And so that's, that's a a scary starting point of where Ontario is today. We receive equalization payments. We've had our credit downgraded uh, numerous times. And so rather than, rather than accept that as being the status quo for Ontario, I think the challenge for anyone who aspires to be Premier, any party that aspires to serve in government, is to say what we would do, what we would do differently to make sure that that isn't the order of the day in Ontario, and that's what motivates me, that's what motivates our caucus and our team as we work around the province of Ontario. And one of the beautiful things, one of the beautiful things of going to every single corner of the province uh, is that you hear good ideas. Uh, and boy, have we been doing that. Uh, 
we have a, a minivan, an Ontario-made minivan that in the last six months alone we've put over 100,000 kilometers on. And so when it comes to seeing the province and hearing good ideas, we're doing, we're doing just that. Whether it's in Kenora or Wawa or Ottawa or downtown Toronto, uh, we are hearing suggestions. And uh, that's important because you get some of the best ideas by asking people in the field. You know, my friend Gurdav Gill is here today, and one quote that I always, uh, I always borrow from him is I remember visiting Gurdav once in his home, and he said, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Listen more than you talk. And if politicians do that, they'll avoid some of the mistakes they make. And uh, uh, we're trying to do that right now as a party with our policy process for Ontario.ca, where we're collecting the best ideas. But there are themes. There are themes we're hearing in the province on the challenges and the opportunities. And I thought today I'd share with you the four pillars of economic development that we've identified uh, as where there's opportunity for Ontario. And it's on red tape, it's on infrastructure, it's on education, um, and of course uh, on energy. Uh, and I, I will touch upon those uh, briefly here today. On red tape, I want to share with you a quote from Ed Clark, uh, who spoke at the Toronto Board of Trade uh, in November of 2015. Ed Clark said, Ontario has 380,000 regulatory requirements for business, almost double the number in some provinces. While the number is staggering, the structure and complexity of compliance is even more problematic. It makes us less competitive. We are seen by foreigners and even ourselves as a slow place to do business. That can't be the sign when you think of Ontario. We need to be viewed as a province where we have minimal red tape, a province that does everything we can to reduce the regulatory burden. You know, I see uh, MP, former MPP and Cabinet Minister Frank Cleese is here today. When Frank was in public service, I remember in the 1990s you had the Red Tape Production Secretary. You made it the business of government to cut red tape, to make sure that there was an open for business sign in Ontario where the province of Ontario would be easy to interact with. And my worry is that's not the case today. Craig Alexander, of the Conference Board of Canada said last month, Ontario has twice as many regulations as British Columbia. I actually think BC is well-regulated economy, so why does Ontario need twice as many regulations? According to the Conference Board, this illustrates an impediment to growth. I agree with the Conference Board. The regulatory burden in Ontario is, is turning business away. It's turning investment away. According to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, excessive red tape is the second highest priority after taxes raised by their membership. And so what does that mean? What is the cost of red tape? Well, let me share you some examples that I've heard around the province. Dave Shaw, an owner of Taurus Stampings in London, has to conform, just in his small business, to 1,500 government regulations each year. And he says, why do we locate in Ontario? The owner of Parkland Farms outside of Sarnia, I'm not sure if Bob Bailey's with us today, but he's always proud to, of any reference of uh, Sarnia, said it takes 15 to 20 hours each week to deal with the paperwork just for his farm. And, and in the tech sector, there's a, a group, Startup Canada, that does a advocacy on, on behalf of uh, the many startups we're seeing. And according to their membership, that red tape is identified as one of the big, biggest obstacles for success in Canada when they explain why startups in Canada are struggling compared to other jurisdictions. So that's why 
any, any path forward for Ontario has to include a commitment by the next government to reduce red tape, to reduce the regulatory burden, and I can tell you if we have the honour to govern, that would be one of the, th the things that we would immediately address to make sure that any unnecessary red tape, any regulatory burden that puts Ontario to a disadvantage, that would no longer be there, that we would create an Ontario advantage on red tape, and that's my first pillar of economic development. My second pillar of economic development is on infrastructure. Now, I think anyone here in Toronto can appreciate the importance of infrastructure. Um, even in the middle of the day, it can be hard to move around Toronto. I have to go to Brantford uh, later today, and, and we're trying to figure out, and, and Phil, is, uh, who's from Brantford, is, is, was about to be the only person in the room who clapped. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it is a beautiful place. Not only does Phil come from Brantford, but... Uh, some pretty notable great Canadians like Wayne Gretzky do as well. So you're right, Brantford always deserves an applause. But uh, uh, you know, it, it could take us two or three hours, two or three hours to get to, to Brantford today, at least. And as we travel the province, we hear again and again about missing transportation corridors. And so the ability to get product to marketplace, that's a pillar of economic development for the province of Ontario. The Toronto Region Board of Trade estimates the gridlock costs the region $6 billion in lost productivity every year and expects this number could grow as high as $15 billion by 2031. You know, I, I remember going, our, our friend MPP Michael Harris is, is here today. I think every business I met in Kitchener-Waterloo, we did a round table of businesses, mentioned the, the travel from going from KW to Toronto and how it's, it's discouraging business investment in Kitchener-Waterloo. Uh, and, and why that's a priority. It's not just Kitchener-Waterloo. I hear that across the province. And so I believe the province of Ontario has a responsibility. When you look at getting product to marketplace, how can Ontario be faster than Michigan or New York or Quebec or Manitoba? What can we do to create an Ontario advantage on product to marketplace? And that's not limited to road or rail. Um, it's aviation too. I see, I see Justin Deluch, Justine Deluch won the door prize tonight, and I, I think of the great work that her family has done in, in the aviation, and I believe this government today is putting, is putting great companies uh, like Porter at a disadvantage. You know, the government of Ontario decided we were going to raise the aviation fuel surcharge by 150%. You know who loved that? Buffalo. The head of the Buffalo airport said it was one of the best days Buffalo ever had. I want to create an Ontario advantage, not an Ontario disadvantage. And, and I repeat that because it's important to think about. This is a global competition for jobs. BC got rid of their aviation fuel surcharge and they got 20 new flights. They, got, they, they grew their aviation economy by 2,000 jobs. Um, we can't fall behind in that competition. Buffalo is competition, Vancouver is competition, and we need to make sure we're slightly better. And when you raise the aviation fuel surcharge, by 150%, you're creating a disadvantage. And it's not just air, it, it, it's marine. Right now, Quebec is making major investments into the shipping industry, recognizing they want to get product to marketplace by that corridor as well. And we're treading water. We're not acting. We're not working with some of the major shipping companies to make sure that Ontario has that corridor as well. And I find when it comes to infrastructure, it's sort of like the movie Groundhog Day. We're making the same announcements they get delayed and delayed and delayed. You look at the transportation corridor for the Ring of Fire, re-announced three times in five years, and no action, nothing actually being built, no shovels in the ground. 
And every time there's an election, governments talk about infrastructure. But what we need is action. You know, the Scarborough by-election, there's a promise of a subway in 2013, and now we're saying that it might happen by 2026. The two-way all-way go in Kitchener was supposed to happen uh, in five years. Now, now it's going to be at least 10. In Niagara, we were promised full-time go service within a year in 2014. Now it will be at least 2023. In Sudbury, before the Sudbury by-election, we were going to see the four-laning of Highway 69 by 2017. Now it won't even be possible until 2021 at the earliest. And so commitment to infrastructure can't be uh, a commitment that's only talked about at election time. What I'd love to see, what I'd love to, to do with the next government of Ontario is to make sure that we're known as a government that invests in infrastructure to make sure our transportation corridors are stronger, more effective, more efficient than our competitors. And Ontario needs that. Just try driving in Toronto at 4 o'clock today. Try driving on the Gardiner at 4 o'clock, and you'll see the growing disadvantage we have. It has to be addressed, and that will certainly be one of our priorities, and it's why infrastructure is my second pillar of economic development. Now, my third pillar of economic development uh, is education. It's a skills gap. A lot of people say, what, what does education have to do with economic development? It has everything to do with it. Let me share with you a quote from former Premier Bill Davis, who actually launched his biography yesterday and was still in uh, fine form. But in 1965, he gave a speech to the Ontario legislature. He said, I have no intention of permitting any group of young people to be forgotten and deprived or any group of adults needing or retaining New, new information, new education for a world of work and a new age to be neglected. The new era is golden with promise if only we prepare for it in time for it. And, and Bill Davis built the college network, understanding it was government's job to make sure that the education footprint we have in the province met the labour market demands. And my worry is today in Ontario, we are not meeting the labour market demands. The, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce... It reported that Ontario's skill shortages cost the economy $24.3 billion in foregone GDP and $3.7 billion in provincial tax revenues annually. So where is this skills mismatch? Let, let me give you some examples to illustrate it and why this needs to be a focus of the next government of Ontario. Last year, we graduated 9,000 teachers for 5,000 teaching positions. We are intentionally graduating young people for jobs that do not exist. That is not right. That is not fair, especially to the young person who thinks they're going down that path for a job in that profession, not knowing that it will never be possible. And having the government subsidize that process and the student take out a student loan and, and then be left without a job. We need to think about this. We need to have that conversation in Ontario. 39% of employers are experiencing difficulty filling a job over the last 12 to 18, 18 months, according to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce membership. By 2025, Ontario could face a shortage of approximately 364,000 workers, according to the Conference Board of Canada. 52% of engineering and infrastructure firms have trouble hiring Someone, hiring someone with the qualifications they need. We need more engineers, and the government should encourage that. The government should enable that. And you look at the other skills that, that, that are in desperate need in our, in our academic journey. The TD Bank of Canada's National 
uh, report on financial literacy said that 8 out of 10 young Canadians lack confidence in their fina financial knowledge. I was doing a tour in eastern Ontario with MPP John Yakabuski, and I went to the Employment Ontario office in his riding in Pembroke. And the manager of their Employment Ontario office told me that on a regular basis he'll have a high school grad that can't make simple change at a teller. We are not having robust financial literacy when that happens in Ontario. That should not happen in Ontario. We should make sure we give young people the financial tools that they need to be equipped with for the challenges that they're going to meet. We need to graduate young people for the jobs that exist today and tomorrow, not the ones that existed 20 years ago. And there's so many opportunities to graduate young people in fields where we are confident they're going to get a job. And other states, other provinces are adapting. British Columbia just added coding to their curriculum. There is, there is incredible potential in the tech sector, and we need to adapt. We're not adapting in Ontario. You know, I, I did a roundtable in Kitchener-Waterloo uh, uh, with some of the tech companies there. There was one tech company in particular, uh, Desire to Learn, who told me that of their new employees, and this is a very successful tech company that is, is really taken off, of their new employees, they got half of them from California. I said, why would that be the case? And they said, the deep programming they need, we only teach in two of our academic institutions in Ontario. And I said, why don't we teach them at all the academic institutions here? If you need program, deep, if you need deep programming, why don't we teach that here? And Desire to Learn said, they, they, they didn't know why. They were bewildered why we weren't having that academic stream here. We need to adapt. We need to adapt to the jobs that exist today. And, and the tech sector is just one example where I believe we're treading water. You look at the skilled trades. There are huge shortages in the skilled trades. I, every community I go to, I hear about far more job opportunities than there is applicants in the skilled trades. And yet, right now, we're essentially defunding industrial arts in most school boards. You know, when I grew up, I had shop class. Using your hands is not a bad thing. Why would we not provide the funding to have industrial arts? Why that is becoming forgotten from our academic process is beyond me. We need to use the tools we have in government to encourage young people to follow the paths that will lead to a job. And if there are jobs in the tech sector, if there is jobs uh, in, in, in the financial world, if there is jobs um, in, in the skilled trades, we need to adapt. And that's the key thing. Government cannot tread water. And Bill Davis understood that 50 years ago, and we have to understand that today. The status quo is not working for Ontario. If we are losing $3.7 billion dollars, and provincial tax revenues that we desperately need because we're not graduating young people for the jobs we need, that should be an alarm bell that has to be rectified. And that's why evolving our education system to meet the skill shortages of today is my third pillar of economic development. And my last pillar of economic development is on affordable energy. Now, this is probably something, and I know MPP Vic Fideli is uh, here today, um, I don't think there's anything we hear more often uh, than the challenge with, with hydro prices in the province of Ontario. It's costing us jobs. So we have the highest energy prices in North America. We passed Hawaii this summer as having the highest hydro prices in North America. No mainland generation within 1,000 kilometers, and they have more affordable hydro. We have energy policy that has been set on political considerations, not 
by the experts, not evidence-based policy, and it's costing Ontario. Everywhere I go in Ontario, I hear about businesses that are leaving Ontario or not expanding here because of energy prices. Stanpak was a company I recently met with in uh, Niagara. They have, they've got a plant in Smithville and in Texas. The, the difference in their hydro bills between the two plants of similar size is 100%, or, or in, in dollar terms, $650,000 a year. And the owner of that company said, where do you think we're going to put our, our next investment? Is it going to be in Ontario or is it going to be in Texas? I don't want people looking away from Ontario because of hydro. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce found that one in 20 Ontario businesses are considering shutting their doors, according to a membership survey, in the next five years because of hydro prices. Ontario, like I said, is home to the highest industrial electricity rates in North America. That's a big sign telling businesses not to come to Ontario. That has to be addressed. Auto assembly plants in Ontario paid as much as $112 a megawatt hour for electricity in 2014. That's about double the cost of electricity in 15 Midwestern states who averaged $48 a megawatt hour. Think about that competitive disadvantage for Ontario. $112 a megawatt hour in Ontario in 2014. It's gone up since then. And $48 in in, in competitor states. Now I'm going to read you a quote from Terry Raffa, chairman and CEO of Raffa Auto Group. And he said, people complain about labor costs. Labor costs are not that bad. Ontario is competitive. Electricity, natural gas, they're out of control. They are the second highest cost. And you know, that's someone in the industry, in the auto sector, saying why it's difficult to retain auto jobs in Ontario. So what's, what's the solution on energy? How have we got in this predicament where Ontario has this, has this giant disadvantage on energy? Between 2009 and 2014, Ontario's average annual electricity surplus was almost equivalent to the total existing power generation of Manitoba. That's our surplus. In fact, by 2020, Ontario will produce as much surplus power. This is looking ahead. By 2020, Ontario will produce as much surplus power that we could power the province of Nova Scotia for five years. As a result, over the last three years, Ontario has given away $3 billion worth of energy to neighboring states. This government has become the best Ministry of Economic Development that Pennsylvania, Michigan, and New York has ever seen. And that's not our job. We're charging you to give it to Pennsylvania. We are charging you on your global adjustment and giving it to Michigan. We are subsidizing your competitors, and for some reason that's okay in Ontario. It is unbelievable. Generation used for production is good. Generation capacity that is paid for but not used, that's bad. Spilled water at hydro facilities, diverted steam at nuclear facilities, disconnected inverters at renewable facilities, that's not good. It's an indication of economic waste, and that's my concern. We have green power, domestically produced green power, that we can't use, that we're spilling, and we're signing agreements for contracts that we know we're going to give away. It has nothing to do with green energy. It is bad contracts that are being signed, and unfortunately, the government continues to create more generation, sign more contracts, and everyone in Ontario is paying for it. That has to be rectified. If there was an Ontario PC government tomorrow, we would 
start off by immediately stop signing energy contracts for power we do not need. We would stop the further sale of Hydro One. We would take measures to make sure that, that supply and demand are in line so we don't export billions of dollars in power each year. We have to have competitive energy prices in the province of Ontario if we hope to succeed. And that is my fourth pillar of economic development. It's ultimately about creating a package for Ontario that creates an Ontario advantage. Because right now in Ontario, if you're a municipal leader, if you're a business, this is the hand we're dealing you. Come to Ontario. We have excessive red tape, number one in Canada in red tape. We have suffocating transportation corridors, gridlock that is getting worse by the year. We have an energy system that's, an education system that's graduating young people in the wrong fields, a mismatched human resources because of that, and we have the highest energy prices in North America. That's the hand we're dealing you. Now imagine we could flip that around. Imagine we could deal you a hand that said, come to Ontario. We have the least regulatory burden. We have the least red tape. We have effective transportation corridors to get product to marketplace. We have an education system graduating young people in the fields that are emerging, and we have competitive energy prices. If we have that hand, I know Ontario can succeed. I know Ontario can be that province that leads in confederation like we always have historically. That's the possibility. And I think the lens that any premier has for the province should be what makes us competitive. And any decision made in Ontario that makes us less competitive should be avoided like the plague. It's about being competitive. So let's talk about one of the new conversations we're having in Ontario today. It's well known and it's got media coverage this week that Justin Trudeau is saying all provinces have to have a carbon price. We had this debate in the provincial legislature last spring. Kathleen Wynne has introduced a cap and trades system where the government's going to collect $1.9 billion more in revenue. It will give the government more money for spending. Uh, and at the same time, we have to purchase emission credits from the Western Climate Initiative. So we'll, by 2020, be purchasing $300 million in credits from California. By 2030, $3 billion. How does that make us more competitive? $1.9 billion of new costs, that does not make Ontario more competitive. You look at BC, it's revenue neutral. Everything collected goes back to the people, goes back to businesses. So there's not a competitive disadvantage in British Columbia. In Ontario, if it's simply new taxes, if it's simply new cost, if it's simply a new revenue stream for government, we're creating a disadvantage. We made amendments to, we, we tried to convince the government to make their cap and trade revenue neutral. They said no. We tried to ask for AG oversight to make, make sure every cent was going in the right area. The government had no interest. And that's why on this debate on cap and trade or a carbon price, We've been trying to take a conservative approach, saying what creates an advantage. We're not running from the debates on the environment. We're actually embracing them. And our, our environment critic, um, Lisa Thompson, MPP, who's here today, has been doing a spectacular job. And Lisa, we really appreciate all your hard work on that. Um, and I'm proud that the conservative party, the progressive conservative party in Ontario, understands that no one has a monopoly on the environment as an issue, and that, frankly, it was Bill Davis who created the Ministry of the Environment. It was Brian Rooney that helped negotiate acid, acid rain. And we're going to make sure we address the challenges of climate change today and do so in a fashion that protects Ontario's ability to be competitive. And a revenue-neutral carbon price 
is a much better policy for the province of Ontario than a cap-and-trade that will simply enable more government spending and more money flowing out of Ontario. I wanted to close by saying I'm really excited about uh, our journey as a progressive conservative party um, over, the, over the last few years and where we're going. You know, we've seen more and more people come towards our party saying we want to we be involved, we want to help. You know, our party has grown from a membership two years ago of 10,000 to now we're closing, by the end of the year we could be at a membership of close to 100,000. We are seeing a different PC party. I remember looking out in the by-election in Scarborough Rouge River, uh, a by-election, a riding that the Conservatives had once lost by 51 points, where we won by 10%. But what I saw in that room was more volunteers than we could handle. That it was, it was reflective of the beautiful diversity of the city of Toronto. Our membership is increasingly diverse, it is increasingly young, and that is a beautiful thing for our party to see. As I said at our, our conference in Ottawa, it doesn't matter who you love, it doesn't matter where you're born, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, it doesn't matter your faith, it doesn't matter where you work, you have a home in our progressive conservative party if you want to get Ontario back on track. And I can tell you thousands and thousands of Ontarians are signing up and saying it is time to get Ontario back on track for prosperity. And if anyone here today wants to join us on that journey, I implore you to get involved. You know, we're 18 months away from the next provincial election, not that I'm counting, um, <laughs> and we would love the assistance, whether it is getting involved or sharing your ideas. Our policy process for Ontario.ca is starting from the premise that there's no monopoly on a good idea. And it doesn't matter if an idea was originally a PC idea, a liberal idea, an NDP idea, if it makes sense for Ontario, we're going to embrace it. That's our only barometer. What makes sense for Ontario? What will make us more competitive? And we are working very hard, 7 a.m. to midnight, to make sure that, that our party is successful in the next election so we can get Ontario back on track. That's what it's about. That's what we're burning the midnight oil for. And I'm just so thankful that all of you gave me an opportunity here today to say a few words. And I look forward to the questions that uh, may have been written during lunch. So thank you so much. You, you notice the blue, uh, the blue uh, laces here? Brings, they bring out my eyes. But. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Brown has agreed to, to take a few questions, and we only received one written question thus far. And that question was, what is your economic strategy to deal with the increasing wage gap? Mm -hmm. um, so in, in terms of the wage gap between uh, genders, the wage gap between... I think it was asked by MJ. Okay. Between you know, I, I think the best thing to address a wage gap in terms um, of our society today is to create jobs. You know, I, I look at the example of Fort McMurray. Fort McMurray, um, when before there was challenges in the industry. Um, people working in subways were making $25. People working at McDonald's were making $25 an hour because there was a shortage of jobs. My goal is to fix our economic fundamentals so that we create an Ontario advantage and, and there is a competition for jobs where, where, where if, if you're a young person looking for a job, 
it's a choice between good job and good job. And uh, when there is a shortage of jobs, when we've, we've lost 350,000 manufacturing jobs, and, and when, you've, when you have a bleeding of jobs, it means that less and less can be paid and, and there's less and less good jobs. And I think a strong, vibrant economy is the best recipe to deal with the wage gap. Okay. Do we have uh, any other questions? I think Taylor's running one more up here. Okay. Hopefully I can read this okay. Um, Why not privatize electricity? Alberta did it very successfully. At the same time, Ontario... I can't read the end of that, but... Okay. Thank you. So uh, right now, with the whole the, we've had the debate over the privatization of, of Hydro One. Um, we, have, we have a number of concerns with how it's gone about. Um, one, the, the losing majority control uh, is an issue we've had had with it. If you look at what the city of Toronto is doing, they're actually retaining majority control. Uh, the other worry we have is the government's actually, in some cases, loaning groups funds to purchase shares. Uh, that doesn't help the province's uh, bottom line. Uh, and one of the biggest concerns is it's not the money that's being collected, as much as the government said it was going to be used to fund transportation, it's all being used right now as one-time money. Uh, and we're still going to be in a structural deficit. And so, you know, it is, it is a, uh, unfortunate how it's happened. Um, and I think... The fact that 200 municipalities have come out against it, the fact the financial accountability officer has said the way it's been done will be a, a negative for Ontario after two years, uh, should be raising alarm bells on, on the privatization. Um, and uh, you know, our party voted against it in the legislature. I think that's all the time we have for. Yeah. Sorry, I think I think that's all the time we have for questions today. Um, and uh, again. Let's give a round of applause for Patrick Brown. And I'd like to I'd like to welcome Jane McKenna up to the podium from Bruce Power to uh, provide the thank you. So on behalf of Bruce Power, I'd like to thank uh, Patrick for his insightful words. We all know that um, we need change in government, and we all know that this government has lack of respect uh, for the Ontario taxpayer, and they're definitely out of touch with the people of Ontario. I was one of the first PCs to support Patrick in his bid for leadership. I believed in his energy, his dedication, and his unwavering commitment to rebuilding the PC party in preparation for success for 2018. After hearing your remarks today, Patrick, I think we were all a clear, we all have a clear understanding of what we need for change with you. Thank you for all of us for joining us here today. A sincere thank you to our generous sponsors today. Uh, Our event sponsors are Travelers Canada and Bruce Power Nuclear, as well as our fantastic VIP sponsor, Enterprise. Without sponsors, we simply can't hold these lunches. So let's give them a generous round of applause. I would also like to thank our print sponsor, The National Post, as well as MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event to thousands of viewers all over the world. 
And although our club has been around since 1903, we have moved into the 21st century and are active on social media. So please follow us on Twitter at empire underscore club and visit us online at empireclub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. I don't think we have Snapchat yet, Taylor. <laughs> Maybe next year. Finally, please join us once again. Our next lunch is on October the 27th. We have Chris Overholt, the Chief Executive Officer and Secretary General of the Canadian Olympic Committee, and I'm told we're going to secure some uh, athletes as well from the Olympics, so that will be fantastic. Thank you for attending today. This meeting is now adjourned.